Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for these songs that are being sung. Thank you for this congregation that you've called to yourself. And we pray, Lord, that as we just come and bow before you, Lord, you would just plant a word in our hearts today that would cause us to live in a greater way for you. We ask this together in Jesus' name. Amen. So often I find that we are connected to the wrong things in life, to the things in life instead of people, to the things in life instead of God. And these things, they have us. I was taking a walk in my neighborhood the other day with my father-in-law, and we went down around some houses, and we came across this house. The garage doors open, and it looked like, like everything in the garage had been vomited out onto the lawn. In our neighborhood, it's the kind of place where you can have two cars and no space to park them in your garage. So at this house, I was trying to understand what was there because I was seeing things that it didn't look like you could fit it all in if they had to pet it back in. So there was like bikes and snowmobiles, maybe some skis. There was definitely a bunch of hockey equipment. There was furniture. There was toys for kids of all ages and stages of life. The things have us, whether it's the computer, the car, the house, the money, the vacation plans, the current assignment at work, the hot-button political issues, strikes or elections, disasters, or even text messages. They're all things. And we are connected to them more here in this part of Canada than perhaps any other part of the country. But it's not meant to be this way. Jesus taught his disciples something very different. We know this from Mark chapter 6. When he was sending out the 72, he sent them out two by two, with nothing else for their journey. Just two by two. No phones, no computers, no, no transportation, no extra clothes, no arrangements for accommodation made ahead of them. No money. Just each other and God. And that was enough to advance the gospel. And perhaps it is to say that without this high connection to each other and to Christ, the gospel won't advance at all. The things should not have us. Rather, we need to come to the realization that through Christ, through what God has done in his power, we together have become a thing. We've become a temple of the living God. And that's what has us now. So I want to look at a book today that's going to talk about being highly connected to each other and highly connected to Jesus Christ. So if you turn with me to the book of Ephesians, you'll be in the right spot for when we begin to look at our text today. Ephesians is a a book about people who are highly connected to Christ and to each other, not things. And they're people like you and me. They come from a, a myriad of different backgrounds. They are men and women, husbands, wives, fathers, mothers, children, managers, employees and employers. All believers who have responded in faith to the good news of Jesus Christ. They used to walk in sin. They used to struggle to get along with each other. They used to fall under the constant barrage of fiery darts that Satan used against them in spiritual attacks. They had either been religious or rebellious until someone came along and shared with them that Jesus Christ was the mighty savior that they needed. They learned that he had had a plan to build them all together into this new thing, a new dwelling place on earth. And this new thing was was a temple. 
But it wasn't going to be made of stones and precious metal. Instead, it was going to be made of people and filled with the precious Holy Spirit. So this book is about people like us. As we prayed this morning, we were noting that we are different people from different backgrounds. Prayed in a circle this morning and there was Spanish and Portuguese represented and three tones of skin at least. And it's an amazing thing what God has brought together. And so it's about people highly connected to each other and highly connected to Christ. And the great concern in this letter is that this church, our church, would know the hope of Christ's calling, the richness of the glorious inheritance of, of Christ and the love of Christ as they lived in power, the power of God that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. So you might know these ideas in, in a different triplet, knowing the hope, the faith, and the love, and the power of God. It takes some time to really study this book, and we won't be able to look at it all in the time we have this morning, but we can jump in at chapter four, verses one to three, and begin, begin to get an understanding of what it's going to take to live this highly connected life. So if you turn, to me to chap, turn with me to chapter four. Paul writes, he's, he's actually at this point in his life, in his life he's, a, he's arrested. This was a, a common thing with Paul. He wouldn't stop preaching the gospel and that bothered people. So often, he was arrested. And at this time, he was writing letters to different churches. So he writes this in chapter four, verse one. As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. The focus for me here is this idea of, of living a life worthy of the calling. The word behind that is walking around, the idea that we get up to do something and, and pay attention and this is how we move, this is how we go about our lives, that we live worthy of the calling of Jesus Christ. This is a great concern in this letter. And, and to, to look at this in a, more of an expanded way this morning. I want to zero in on three aspects of walking in the calling of Christ. These are three habits of being, being highly connected people that can help us. We can use them to assess how connected we are to the hope and to the love and to the faith and the power of God. This passage may even shed light for us on why or why we do not stand under spiritual attack. We'll see that everything depends on being connected to each other and, on and being connected to Jesus Christ. So would you turn with me to now to chapter 5 in the same book of Ephesians. We'll be working from ch chapter 5 verses 1 to 21. And I'll be looking at each section in turn trying to help us see one of these habits of being highly connected. So verse 1. Paul keeps going. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a man as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. 
So as I reflect on this text, I see that the first habit of highly connected people is the imitation of God. It talks, about, talks to us about being dearly loved children who want to imitate our spiritual father. This reminds me of, 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 of my father, my own father. He used to go to uh, work and he wore suits. He had a whole closet full of suits. And he would get up, he'd, he'd put his clothes on, put on his aftershave, make his hair look good. Did the afro thing, actually. And, um, you know, pick it up and pat it down, all these kind of things. Um, and he'd go to work, and I remember seeing him do that, and I was proud of him. And so now when I go to get ready for a sermon or something like that and put on a suit, who am I thinking about? I'm dressing like this, but I'm seeing my dad in the mirror. I'm trying to grow up to emulate him because I loved him and he loved me and he's setting this example. And you know about this too, all of you parents. You know what it is, or grandparents, to look behind you and see a little one copying the things that you do, laughing like you do, um, uh, cheering on the same team that you like. I was telling the first congregation that poor Jordan, he didn't have a chance not to like the Bruins, right? <laughs> That's probably an impossibility, right? Um, but we see that as children, we just naturally want to emulate our parents who love us. And Paul picks up on this language here when he says, imitate God, your father, as dearly loved children. So what does this imitation of God look like? Well, the first hint is that um, it says it looks like love expressed in Christ's sacrifice for us. The love expressed in Christ's sacrifice for us. And this sacrifice must translate into our own sacrificial actions for each other and for his mission. If you want to know what Christ's sacrifice involved, it involves a, a whole different attitude. If you look at um, Philippians 2, 5 to 8, I'll read it to you. Don't worry about going there, but maybe you just want to mark it down. It tells us this about Jesus Christ's attitude. It said, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus in Philippians 2, verses 5 to 8. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. That's the attitude. And we see in Christ's example that love and sacrifice are tied closely together. And so some of us living now who have, who have accepted Christ into our hearts and are part of the church and are connected to each other and connected to Christ, we understand that and we see this beginning to play out in our own lives. And that's why some of us have adopted the notion that giving is not really right until it represents a glad sacrifice. In other words, it's like this gentleman taught me in my, in my first church. He said, when I try to give, I try to give until it hurts. I try to give until I notice the money would be gone. It's easy to give money to something when it's just a couple extra bucks, but it's different when it's marked for something else and you give to that level. It's a sacrifice, a glad sacrifice. It's the same with serving. We can't choose to serve only when it would be convenient. Otherwise, it can't be sacrificial. So that's to say, if they call me to serve in the nursery, I can't say, well, is it only the easy kids? Is it only the kids that know how to, how to go to the washroom on their own and, 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 and are play on their own time? Or is it the kids that uh, you know, need to be changed uh, and, and the ones that just need all that attention? Are they going to cry? I can't select ahead of time because it's not really a sacrificial service. Our, our attitude is supposed to be like that of Jesus Christ. And if you notice in the same text, 
it talks about Jesus offering himself up as a fragrant offering, a wonderful smell, an aroma, like steak. Right? Some of you guys are going to do that today. Right? Like uh, apple pie. Maybe some people will add that now. Those of you that like to work on your lawn, like the smell of, of the garden just after a, a spring rain. A, a fragrant offering is what this word, word means. And, and I want to ask you a question. What does your sacrifice smell like? Does it stink? Right? Is your attitude right? In other words, does it stink to serve beside you because when you're called to serve or when you're called to make a sacrifice, you just get caught complaining? Or perhaps you're the type of person, maybe you get grouped with that person and they just don't like to work. And so they, they're just a bear to work with. It's like being back in school and you find out you get teamed with me and I'm lazy. And you're like, oh no, I got paired with Dwayne. He doesn't like to do anything. It stinks to work with that guy. Well, what does your sacrifice smell like? Maybe you would be honest in today and say, I struggle with my own attitude when it comes to serving, when it comes to giving. But I want to give you good news. Everything I'm teaching you today, everything that Paul is teaching us today, it's all about what God has enabled through his power. And so that we can find this. It's probably true of you, if you have come to Christ, that Jesus is helping you with your attitude when it comes to sacrifice. He's teaching you to love like he did, to sacrifice yourself in a way that pleases God. And now, the cross of Jesus Christ is your teacher. So imitation looks like love expressed in sacrifice. But imitation also looks like holiness expressed in particular situations of impurity. It's coming from verse 3 to 5. And in this passage, we see that Paul lays out two high standards, extremely high standards for the church when it comes to holiness. He says, among you there should not even be a hint, not even a sliver, not even a scant reminder of immorality. And when it comes to what you say, instead of coarse joking and jesting and, 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 and useless idle words, I want you to learn to speak with thanksgiving on your lips. What a standard. What a standard. It's so high. Because we know that we live in an impure situation, and it's out of this situation that Paul says of the church, God is expecting holiness. But we know this is hard. We understand the idea of garbage in, garbage out. We all know what it's like to be affected by the impurity around us. So I understand, for instance, that if I hang out with potty mouth people, it doesn't take very long before in my own thoughts I start to fill them with bad words and bad ideas. But it's the power of God that's leading us together that helps us remain holy in precisely these impure situations. So what I wanna draw out for you people is this. It's not that God calls us to be holy when we gather on Sunday. Yes, that's true. But God calls us to be holy when we walk through our lives throughout the rest of the week in every situation, regardless of the, how impure the situation is. And he calls us to these high standards. And for that, we don't have to worry about being good enough. It's God's power that is changing us to reach these high standards. So that we can just begin to operate not with just less sin, but not even a hint 
of immorality when it comes to our sexual lives, when it comes to greed, when it comes to those kind of things, and learning to speak to one another without the rudeness, without the innuendo. Because we know that without God, we are, re- we are likely to relax the standard at times in these areas. I want to tell you that my heart would be, my evaluation of, of my life and, and the churches that I've been part of is, we don't keep a high standard in our speech. In fact, we often will take Christians in as friends and say, you know, this is my friend. Why? Because they let me speak the way I want to. When I make a dirty joke, they laugh with me. When I say something off color, they get it. They go like, well, you're not really, you know, I know you're a Christian, but it's okay to speak like this. And we make our friendships that way. And I want to tell you that this is not what God wants for highly connected people who are connected to Christ and connected to each other. It's not a matter of the rules. It's a matter of the outcome we're looking forward to in life. If you'll notice, this passage ends with comments of, the people that speak and act like this, they are not going to be partakers in the inheritance of God. And he says, what is reserved for them is wrath. So we tie our behavior into our faith. Holiness is a matter of faith in what is to come. The last part about imitation, what, is, what does it look like to imitate God? Well, we need to remember that Christ is the highest example to all. Imitation looks like Jesus. See if, you see, see if you can tell who I'm imitating with this statement. Not a Christian lifestyle, but spiritual genetic remodel so we resemble our Heavenly Father in everything we do. Does that sound like any of the other pastors that use this stage? I thought it sounded like Pastor Rick. Try to use Rick-type words. What I mean to say is imitation has nothing to do with what we put on, but it's who we grow up to look like that reminds people of who we come from. So when we are highly connected to the power of Christ and to each other according to the unity of the Spirit, we will, we will remind people of the true and sovereign God. So that's the first habit of highly connected people. The second thing I notice in this passage is we, the, the habit of moral clarification. Ephesians chapter 7, I mean Ephesians chapter 5 verse 7. He continues, therefore do not be partners or partakers with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible. For it is light that makes everything visible. That's a hard verse to translate actually right there. That is why it is said, wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. This part of the chapter is referring to the idea that as part of God's plan, he's revealing this thing called the church, and he's risen, he's called us, the people of God, up. He's awakened us and brought us into a new life. And as we begin to live for him, we shine like Zion, like the temple is supposed to be. We are to be people that give moral clarification. And this declares a great mystery, that we have been darkness, but now we are light. 
Now we walk as children of light. It's a huge transformation. And what it means is that we can no longer try to share things with people who, who are building their lives from darkness. There's no way to take something from what is dark and use it to improve a life that is in the light. It would be like I see my house is on fire and instead of trying to put it out with water, I just try to throw some matches on it. You need to take something that is opposed to improve your life. Many of you guys, or some people this weekend will open up cottages and they're gonna go to a place and the lights have been off and when they go in and they flick the lights on, little things will start running away. And if you don't have a cottage, sometimes it's in your basement when you haven't been down there for a long time. And you run on and you you see little things retreating into the darkness. In our house, it's a bunch of spiders. Right? The light reveals what's there. So we can't be taking parts of what's dark and trying to build it into our lives of light. Our neighbors can continue to do this because they are not light. They are living for something less than Christ's calling. At best, when we are in darkness, the best light we we can have is still darkness, just infused with some grace, maybe some justice, maybe faith at times, but it's not light. We are light. And that's amazing. I wonder if from heaven, if the angels look on our congregation this morning, if they get to see us, not as we appear to each other, but if they get to see us with some type of aura, some type of glowing. You know, do we, do we appear as light to God? Because we know that our own Father is light, and we're growing up to emulate Him. If we look at light, we understand from this passage that light produces things. It says that because we're light, we can begin to look for things like goodness and righteousness and truth in our lives. That's coming from verse 9. It says the product of light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. So our lives produce these things. But more importantly, light has a moral purpose. It doesn't just have a moral product. It has a moral purpose, and that's calling attention to what is good. When the lights go on, you understand what's wrong. If I've left the kitchen in a mess the night before because I've stayed up late watching movies, eating popcorn, and drinking pop, and Hannah comes down and turns on the light, she goes, oh my goodness, it's a mess. Right? I hid it in the darkness, but the light comes on. That's a mess. That's a spider. That's a dead rat. That's sin. Do you understand? When the lights go on, we see things more clearly. So part of what we need to do is we need to expose things. We need to clarify. Darkness confuses, but light clarifies. Darkness can obscure, but light reveals. Moral clarification requires that we also become non-participants with who and what is bad. Means that we have to do two things. One, when we notice something's wrong, when it's shining in the light, we have to step back from it. And many people in churches are really good at this part. We step back from sin. We are all non-partakers in sin. We step back. But the thing we need to keep realizing is that this passage pushes us to call what is sinful out, to expose what is dark. It's our nature, maybe as Canadians, maybe as shy people, who knows, but it's our nature to to keep our opinion about what is wrong to ourselves. It's God's nature to expose what is sinful to the world. So it implies some activity. You know, our pastor Rick, when he gets up at this pulpit and he wants to proclaim that homosexuality is wrong, he's exposing the darkness. 
He's highly connected to Christ in that moment. And we need to be highly connected to him so that we don't just retreat from him. Maybe you feel uncomfortable when someone will say from a pulpit, that is wrong. And you might say, well, that's my opinion or that's your opinion. Let's just not really bring it out to the foreground. But that's not what we're called to do. We need to step back and we need to call out what is wrong. We need to make things clear. In our culture, with these kind of conversations, we can't ride the neutral fence and hope to accomplish God's will together. Edmund Burke said, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. It's a nice notion. It reminds us that we need to act. But here's the thing. We are a church and we're connected to God and it's our Father that defeats evil. We don't defeat evil. Our Father defeats evil around us and in us. And he's called us to be on mission with him to clarify what's wrong, to clarify what's right, and to stand against it and call it out in his name. Some of you will know that in our family this week, we, we tried to do this. We tried to step back. We had been keeping our opinion to ourselves about, about our school's practices concerning how they're going to teach our kids about all the diversity in our, in our public schools right now. And one of the issues they had was that in order to try to make it more diverse, they would fly two flags from the same pole. So my wife and I, uh, she did a lot of the writing, did most of the writing, did all the writing. She put a letter to the board, which said, in its essence, that's probably wrong. Didn't say it's wrong. It said, there's no reason for us to fly an inclusive flag from the Canadian flagpole, because under the maple leaf, we're already united. And she's pointing out the, the, the stupidity of, of this logic to say that we have to fly two flags from the same pole to tell everybody in the same nation that we're one nation. It doesn't make any sense. So she stepped back and she spoke out. And this is what we need to do. And I said, Hannah, I want to make sure I put my name on the same letter because I want to stand connected with you as we stand connected to Christ. Because Christ is our head and empowers the church, when we are connected to him and each other, we will serve to clarify what is right and wrong, good and bad in our immediate communities. Well, the third habit that I see in this passage is something called circumspection. What is circumspection? Well, I'm going to take two words, a circumference and inspection. I'm going to circumspect this pulpit. I'm going to walk around it, and I'm going to look for things to see if anything's wrong, because I want to use it. And in this passage, we see that this is a habit of highly connected people. Look at verse 15. Be very careful, then, how you live. Now, I want to suggest to you, well, I want to teach you that every time you see this word live, it's talking about walk. It's the same concept of how you go about your life. Be very careful how you go about your lives, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So the third habit is circumspection, where we do like the circle check of our moral lives. We're looking for some examples of wise living in two areas, how we use our time and how we engage in worship. 
So when we look around at your lives, as we look around at our lives together, how are we using our time in light of evil days? And in light of the opportunity to study and know God's will. There's an example given in this text about being drunk versus being filled with the Holy Spirit. Because Paul is teaching the church to redeem the time. And he says, you know, drunkenness is such a waste of time. It's pursuing a pleasure, pursuing a thing to the point that it changes how you think. And, and when you're stuck over here being drunk or inebriated or, or out of it, you, you stop being connected to the body. And you stop being connected to Christ. That thing takes you out of what God has died to put you in. So he says, don't spend your time being drunk. Don't spend your time being caught up in some, some type of thing that changes your thinking. Rather, spend your time being filled with the Holy Spirit. Spend your time seeking to understand what the, the will of the Lord is. Because this one disconnects you, and this thing connects you. I want you to hear the concern here. It's not, again, to just say, here's a rule. It's not a don't drink. It's not a don't, don't enjoy things. But it's saying, here's the effect. When we focus on what changes our thinking, it leads us to reckless immoral behavior. That's what debauchery means. Reckless immoral behavior. And Christ died so that we would give him exactly the opposite, controlled righteous, good, truthful behavior. Do you see the parallel? And this is why it's so wrong, it's so awful for, for, for our Father to look down and see that any one of us has been taken out by some type of sinful practice like drunkenness that alters our thinking. It's because he, he's redeemed us for something completely different with our time. And all of you that have any family members in your house that lose time because they pursue a pleasure to the point that it causes them to think differently than Christ or it causes them to be cut off from Christ, you understand what it's like to live with a family member that's not engaged with you. You understand what it's like to have someone that's completely out of it. And our church won't function any differently than a family that has that problem. We need everybody pouring into the word. We need everybody submitting to the spirit because it takes so much energy to care for that one person that's out of it. It's damaging. Wasted hours where there's no edification, no love, and no light coming from that person. But on the other hand, when you see that someone has been filled by the Spirit, even 15 minutes, even five minutes with someone who's been focused on understanding the will of the Lord is a blessing to your soul. This morning we had someone sing a song that they prepared, their own words, their own lyrics. Many of you maybe met her for the first time. I certainly never met her. But as I listened to the songs, as I listened to what she'd understood, as I listened to how that came out, I was, I was blessed, right? We were connected to each other in those words, and we were connected to, the, to, the, to Christ. So we need to look at our, how we use our time. We need to also look at how we engage in submission to each other in corporate worship. We have this example said to us about how we speak to each other. We've already heard some stuff about how we shouldn't speak, but here it says how we should speak. Verse 19, speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music into your, in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God for the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submitting, this idea is not detached from the others. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. 
So when we come together, we should be boasting God. We should be saying, isn't God amazing? Isn't it, isn't it wonderful what God has done in our lives? As you hear about someone saying something, oh, I had a great week. Well, isn't that amazing, brother? You know, isn't it wonderful, sister? Isn't it, isn't it great that we have found this, this wonderful thing in Christ? And we need to come together, and it pushes us beyond just, just saying things. It says, let's sing. Let's make music. Let's, let's celebrate what God has done. It takes submission sometimes to do that. When a worship leader says, for the fifth time in a service and your back is tired, stand and sing, right? Or sometimes it's the parent that has to say to the kid, stand up, open your mouth, sing the song, right? Sometimes it's a husband who'll t- say to his wife, come on, sing this with me, or, or vice versa, the wife saying to a husband, sing this with me. Or sometimes you're in a row and you're all by yourself and you need the people around you to start singing before you feel comfortable, but in this way we submit to one another in worship and we choose words that build up each other's hearts and souls and minds so that we boast Christ. So I find it fitting that this passage that we're studying leads us to this focus on worship because that's what we've been doing this morning. I'm gonna ask the worship team to come. We've been worshiping this morning, we've been doing this. We came together this morning to sing songs, to speak to each other with hymns, psalms and spiritual songs. And we've been applying this to our soul and we've done this together. And it's just, it's just meant to lift us up, to remind us that we are the new temple where we're highly connected together and highly connected to Christ. And so when we see this, we can look at ourselves, how we walk, and we don't have to be afraid that's gonna say, oh, if I look carefully, if someone comes and circumspects my life, they're gonna see sin, and I'm afraid to do that. You don't have to be worried about that. God's working on that in the church. He's died, so that stuff's going away. What you need to look for in your life is how's, how's it coming? How are you growing? How's it changing? And because you can see it happening, because you can see the imitation of God, because you can see the moral clarity, because you can see the wiser use of your time, you can begin to celebrate and you can say, let's sing about this together. I'd like you to stand. And as you stand, I want you to move close enough to someone in your row that you could, you could connect with them physically. I was at a place this week meeting with other pastors and they told us about this tradition of how they closed their services where they moved their congregation close enough together and they would link arms or hold hands, whatever was appropriate for them. So why don't you do that? Find a way that works for you. And they would do this. And it's the picture of the beginning of the temple, not with stones, not with precious metals, but with people filled with the Holy Spirit. And they had this connection. And then they would turn, sorry, they would sing. They would sing a song as they went out. So I'm asking us together to be linked now and sing a song about Jesus being the center of this temple. And I want you to sing. I want you to sing. If you can't sing, then just proclaim the words. If you're all alone, don't be afraid. Maybe someone will come to you, or maybe you can move to them. Todd, you can't get out of this, buddy. You gotta move, look, there's two people over there. All right, Pastor Steve, would you please lead us? As you go out today, I want to remind you, don't let the things have you. We've been brought into this amazing thing called the living temple. And as you spend your time with your families, your believing friends, amongst your unbelieving friends, I want you to remember your connection, this connection, 
And I want you to remember what we just sang about. And I want, you to remember, I want you to remember that everywhere you go, you are the living temple of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Heavenly Father. Let me pray for you. Lord, I just thank you for this morning. Thank you for the songs we sing. Thank you for binding us together. Thank you for working in our hearts. Lord, we know you will continue to produce holiness and light from us. God, we want to cooperate with you. Help us to do this as we go. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.